Guide Orange County Water Polo Podcast. I'm Dan Albano with the Orange County Register and OCVarsity.com, and I'm joined once again by Steve Carrera, the boys and girls water polo coach at Orange Lutheran, and uh, which uh, also is uh, provides some of our music coming in and out of our podcast. And coach, this is going to be our final podcast of the boys' water polo seasons because the the uh, championships were held in fine fashion uh, this past Saturday at the uh, Willow Pool in Irvine. It was one of the better championship uh, Saturdays that I can recall. There were some very exciting games, uh, some you know some unusually long one unusually long game for a championship game. You know, great comebacks, uh, teams that turned the tide on their rivals. It was a great day. I know you're out there broadcasting for the uh, the National High School Federation uh, streaming, which I got several requests on, and I think people were very interested in your coverage, and especially with that the Division One game, which we'll talk about. But, Coach, how did you? Uh, how did the uh, Division One finals go for you and uh, you know, six water polo games out on Saturday? That was uh, how, how was that day for you? It was good. I mean, games were going. Uh, you know, one one ended, the other one started right up. Um, you know, CIF, you know, hats off to them. They, they obviously did a great job this year of, um, you know, putting on the event. Same with, uh, the Woolet Aquatic Center in Irvine. I mean, it's just, it's such a spectacular venue to have games like this in. Makes it very convenient for people who want to go and watch multiple games. And I didn't see, and I, you know, I was kind of going from one side to the other. I didn't see that they were really clearing people out as much you know i think a lot of people a lot of carryover so people got to see some games that maybe they weren't uh normally would have seen um so yeah i mean i had a great time broadcasting um and i was very appreciative of that opportunity and you know it seemed like there was a lot of water polo fans out there which it's always great i mean it's great to stream the games but it's it's always better to see it in person and sort of feel the energy um from from, from all the teams and all the fans and um, it was just un- it was unfortunate that the MPSF tournament and really all the college conference tournaments are going on in the same the same day. So I think you would have seen even more fans had you know they they sort of offset those a little bit. But um, you know I I got to see everything from Division four and five to uh, Division uh, one and two, and um, I would say the Division four game was probably a little bit disappointing just because Rigetti really. Um, took it to La Crescenta Valley. Um, but other than that, I mean, the Division 5 game was exciting with the young Redlands team. And then obviously Division 2, Foothill and Dana was, you know, I, I mean, that was probably the game of the day, even though the Division 1 game was extremely exciting. Um, the, the Division 2 game with Dana Hills and uh, Foothill was very, very exciting going into sudden death overtime. Yeah, that was definitely the game of the day in my book. Uh, unbelievable game. That's one of the best championship games that I've ever seen. Uh, I've been covering, you know, uh, championship, you know, water polo games in the southern section since, uh, you know, almost the mid nine, pretty much the mid nineties. I think I've seen uh, just about every year since I think nineteen ninety four was my first uh, first game, first uh, finals year was ninety four. And that, you know, I can't remember uh, a championship game that came, went down to double sudden death overtime, double golden goal. You know, um, so for, for the water polo fans that might, might not be too familiar with um, the rules, 
or maybe didn't don't understand the rules, which is understood. You know, is, you know, we can provide a little information. But basically, if the game was you know, tied after regulation, the standard overtime is two three-minute uh, periods, which Dana Hills and Foothill played. They played the two three-minute overtimes, and they play for three minutes for that first overtime. Take a break, play another uh, three-minute standard overtime, and then after that, it was still tied. And then they went. To, then they start playing sudden death periods, uh, three minutes uh, a piece, and it went to the double sudden death. Um, overtime and what was I thought was so remarkable, Coach, and I want to get your thoughts on it was you know that the, the first sudden death overtime period, Foothill had a remarkable amount of chances with two extra man chances. They had a breakaway chance, a, a counterattack, a great steal by Bobby Lee in the middle of the pool. One of their best shooters went down, got blocked by um, by Riley uh, 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 Zachary, Dana Hill's goalie. And then they also had a rebound chance right in front of the goal, uh, right at the end of the uh, of that uh, first sudden death overtime. None of those goals went in, but we had to play a second one. And I thought that was just unbelievable, especially uh, I was really impressed with Riley Zachary played so well. But then we got it, you know, then Foothill got it done in that second sudden death overtime counterattack. And it was almost like poetic justice the way uh, Bobby Lee had the pass on the great counterattack. To Mike Miller for the, the put away goal, he just just he just got it under the arm of Riley Zachary. But what did you think of the you know some of that uh, sudden death action? Well, I mean, like you said, uh, hats off to uh, Riley Zachary. He played a phenomenal, I mean, MVP type game. Uh, Bennett Williams also had a like unbelievable shot in the second overtime period under the arm cross cage low at a set. Um, you know. In, in the overtime, Dana Hills had a really hard time getting Bennett Williams involved. Um, Foothill did a really good job on him, but then when he was isolated one-on-one, he finally got an opportunity and he was able to score. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Dana Hills play, had a great game plan. They stopped the Foothill counterattack the entire game, and, and that's really a staple of the Foothill program is the way they're they're able to counterattack the only time they weren't able to stop the counterattack was on the game winning shot the game winning goal and that you know on the broadcast i was i was talking to my partner just saying you know at some point foothill's gonna get a counterattack goal it's just a matter of time unfortunately for dana hills it was you know it cost him the game but um you know i that's one of those games where Dana Hills just sort of ran out of time. They didn't really, it's hard to say that they lost because I think every time Foothill pulled ahead, Dana Hills responded. And I think if they had another opportunity, they would have responded. I mean, it was just that type of game. I don't think Foothill played their best game. I I really don't. And in particular, um, you know, Bobby Lee, I believe his first name is Bobby Lee. You know, he... You know, I love the kid. I think he's a great player. He lit up Orange Lutheran. I'll be the first one to say when we were up north, he killed us. Right. He had a bad game. I mean, he just did not play well. He, I think he was 0 for 9 in shooting. And once he missed that one on nobody in sudden death, they had another 6 on 5, and he made two passes over, you know, over passes. They kind of went into the lane line, and you could tell he was visibly frustrated with himself. He was kind of looking up at the heavens going, what is wrong with me today? But, you know, luckily his teammates, you know, stepped up and, and sort of bailed him out. 
you know, that was just one of those games where that was probably, that will probably never happen to him again. Um, he just, it just wasn't his day, uh, shooting. He shot 0 for 9 and, um, you know, he had a chance to win it in the first sudden death overtime, but, you know, Foothill is a deep team. They were much deeper than Dana Hills. Not that there was a lot of subbing going on, but I do think early on they were, Foothill was subbing a little bit more and that may have given them a little bit more at push at the end. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, and I, my my take on Bobby is, you know, his his strength to that team was two-meter defense, and two-meter defending, I should say, and that was his specialty. And anything he can give the team offensively, you know, pretty much a bonus. You know, they, the guys that really drive that, you know, you know, the, the real dangerous score, you know, um, was, I think, Chas Horniker. Oh, yeah, you know, He's their number one top-leading scorer. But I think I think you got to look at, you know, the way, you know, um, Bobby did a great job on defense because um, a quiet guy for Dana was their two-meter man. They didn't really have a true two-meter man this year. They set Bennett, who's more, he's, you know, he, he's playing utility. Bennett is, is an attacker, no doubt about it. And, you know, McLaughlin was, a, was quiet. He's a you know, rising junior. He's setting, and he was quiet um, setting. He's really more of, uh, you know, he's playing utility in high school, but he's definitely an attacker with his speed, um, his size. But there's just both great teams um, playing great defense, and uh, you know I really, I really like the mentality that Dana took. You know uh, they lost you know earlier to Foothill, I think about 15 to 10, uh, 16 to 10 at the South Coast tournament. But Coach Rosa did a great job getting those guys to come up, and man, they got close to winning this. Um, and you know Foothill, it's not easy to, to repeat, but they've won it. You know that 6-5 victory gave them two. Um, you know, division uh, two titles in a row, four uh, division uh, CI titles for Coach Jim Brum, the veteran coach, and uh, that was a great game. No, know, and just, and uh, I just want to say, I mean, you know, I agree with you. Bobby Lee is obviously he was on Bennett the entire the entire game. I mean, he wouldn't leave him, and Bennett still got his. I mean, he still got I think three or four goals. But you know, had had Bobby scored or shot his normal percentage, which I would guess is over 50% because he's a great out. He's got a great outside shot. Um, you know, I think Foothill wins by five or six goals to, to be a, just to be a hundred percent honest, had Bobby scored what he scored, what he normally scores. You know, he had nine open opportunities. He's going to make half of those, uh, most of the time. So, you know, I think, uh, uh the goalie for Dana Hill stepping up, making some huge, really up close shots out of two meters, but um, also making some, you know, some pretty critical stops on the six on five um, really helped keep Dana in the mix. And it really slowed down, um, you know, it's it, Dana Hills being able to slow down the foothill counter kept them in the game. They wanted to have a front court battle. They wanted to have a front court game um, and they were able to execute it for the, you know, 99% of the game is just, you know, that sudden death thing. Yeah, it's just it it's unfortunate, but I do think it's better to have a championship format where you're able to play it out as opposed to having a penalty shootout like they do in USA Water Polo. You know, I I like the play it out type uh format. Absolutely. I yeah, I'm I'm glad I, I definitely would take and I, that's a good point. I would definitely take the sudden death periods over the um the shootouts. I I know you know, I know at some point, you know, you know, soccer, you know, they'll move to the 
you know, at some point they'll play a lot of extra time and then in in sudden de- sudden goal and then they'll go to penalty shots. But I think uh, you know water polo guys are so tired. I talked to Bobby Lee and um, Mike Miller, the, the guy who scored the game winning goal afterwards. They were exhausted. Yeah. I talked to Riley Zachary the next day because he was our voice scholar of the week this week. Uh, you know we're talking. You know had a great game about 16 saves and he also has a 4.4 GPA. <laughs> he was tired the next day. Uh, these kids are exhausted, but. Uh, you know, with water polo being so grueling, the sudden death uh, periods will pretty much solve it pretty, uh, pretty darn quick. But, you know, when you talk about, you know, you talk about star players, um, you know, you know, in coming to these championship games, sometimes they kind of cancel themselves out. Yeah. And it, a lot of times it comes down the, to the, uh, the supporting cast. And I thought that played true very interesting. That was one of the big themes, I think, in Division One, um, where you had modern day turn the tables, on Harvard Westlake, they the Monarchs win nine to eight, and a, a big theme in that game was, uh, it, you know, it really, you know, like it has all year between these teams. A lot of it centered around Ben Halleck, who's the uh, you know U.S. national team center at Harvard Westlake. He's a senior Stanford commit, along with Bennett Williams as well. So, modern day pretty much triple team uh, Ben Halleck and did a tremendous job dropping. I. I couldn't believe how uh, how well the kid that that kid was covered. I think he only had about two or three shots. He scored one goal, which was the lowest his lowest output against Modern Day. But then there was foul trouble in this game. Um, ben Halleck actually had a couple of fouls, but he didn't come out. But um, Felix uh, uh, Borsna Vilm uh, had two fouls. He came out of the game for Harvard Westlake, and then you had a kid this uh, which is a junior uh, Alex uh, Mendelson. He came in the game, scored three goals, and then you had, uh, for modern day, Jack Siebel got an early game exclusion for some rough play, and then you end up having uh, his brother, Benny, uh, score a key goal, um, you know, and play some extended minutes. Um, it was an interesting game. What was your take on the Division One game, Coach? I thought it was a great game. I mean, I definitely... Um... I was I was impressed with how Harvard I'm sorry with how Modern Day was able to limit uh, Ben Halleck even on the six on five Ben Halleck was out on the out on one position one and sometimes he plays the post sometimes he plays one they had him at one and you know he took he he really took one shot from there and, and missed it um, but you know the one thing with Harvard that I just I, I was sort of just not questioning because it's it's really hard to question coach Flax. I mean, he's obviously very well accomplished. He's, you know, he's a national team guy. He's won CIF championships. You know, no nothing against what he was doing. I just didn't quite understand where the double post fit into his game plan. You know, he ran a double post really early in the game and um you know, I I just felt like it really clogged up 2 meters. And it didn't give Ben Halleck a chance to even get the ball. See, and the difference really was in a lot of the games before, even when they lost, Halleck was drawing a lot of exclusions and giving them six-on-five opportunities. I, I didn't see him really do that because he wasn't even able to touch the ball. When they were able to put it in, even in traffic, and he got a hold of it, it was an exclusion almost every time. He's just Absolutely. that he's just that good of a player, but when you put the double post in there, I felt like it really clogged it up and it really limited the amount of space that Modern Day needed 
to uh, close out the shooters and then come back to, to drop in two meters. So, um, you know, in the third quarter when Harvard went up, I felt like Harvard had the momentum because Mendelssohn scored three huge goals like in a row. And that was with Felix on the bench. And I was thinking, okay, I mean, Felix is coming in the fourth quarter. You know, I think they're going to maybe score another goal or two. Um, and I think Harvard had the momentum, but you know, they just could not get the ball to Halleck and, um, that really hurt them. There were a lot of wasted possessions in the fourth quarter. And, you know, in the end, I, I think players win game. Players are the ones who are going to step up and win the game. I mean, it's not going to be some amazing coaching play or anything like that. And Chris is an, a great coach. I mean, arguably, you know, I don't, I don't even know if it's arguably the best coach in high school right now. You know, he's been to the final nine times, I believe, in a row. Um, and, but in the end it was, you know, it was Luke Wyatt who pulled up on a counterattack at about, you know, looked like from my point of view, it looked like six or seven meters out and just fired it cross cage and it went in and that was the game winning goal. That wasn't something that was drawn up. That was just, uh, Luke Wyatt being a baller and <laughs> pulling up and saying, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And, um, and it went in. So, you know, that it was a great game. I didn't know what Harvard was really trying to do in the end. They had a really sort of complicated pick play going on. Um, but it forced them out to the lane line, and the time just ran out. I mean, they really didn't have any uh, – they didn't really have the ball in front of the goal um, at the end of the game. I think if they had run something to get a foul outside the five, I think they may have, they may have been able to, you know, at least had a better chance at it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they didn't get a great look. Um, you know, I, I, it was for me interesting uh, the way Harvard uh, used Halleck, who was such a talented player. You know, they they kept them at two meters the whole game. So you you, you naturally wonder, hey, do we need to maybe take him, um, bring him to the perimeter um, to get him some get him some more touches? Do we have to at least work him for some ISO at five meters? For sure. Yeah, I mean, you, uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I was saying that on the broadcast. I was saying, and, and I kept so, sort of saying, "Don't be surprised if you know." I, I trying to anticipate an adjustment, um, and and the adjustment to for me was fourth quarter. Let's put Felix into two meters. Let's put Halleck up, you know, up top or at the wing so that you can post up and get a, just an. Uh, at least have him touch the ball. At least have him, you know, be involved. But he just wasn't involved at all. And, um, you know, credit Modern Day for just being all over him the entire game. Yeah. I, I think I would have liked to see uh, Halleck, you know, definitely, you know, I would have uh, liked to see him move out, draw some, try to draw some fouls at five meters. He's a big enough kid to get up, get some good shots. Um, hey, I mean, maybe he gets up draws a foul and he passes into somebody posting up at five meters. I love love to see that. That's something that I actually love to see from from some Orange Lutheran players. There was there were some times I in the Jay Sarah game where Hannes is drawing five meter shots. He's a deadly shooter. People are expecting the shot. And then it's gonna be a dump pass down So I like I like to see that. I would have liked to see some of that isolation, uh, some of the stuff that I've seen. You know, you guys did uh, nicely with the way you guys could play. You know, between Hannes and 
um, Ash Moulton. I think that's great. You have talented players that are going to draw fouls. If you can isolate them, put them in spots where they can succeed. I would have been, you know, I think also, too, you know, with a high school water polo, I think you have to look very creative at some of your options. And especially when you're playing the same team so many times, you have lots of chances to experiment. And how about just setting Ben Hallis down early um, at two meters and see how um, setting him down on uh, – I'm talking about setting him down offense early while Harvard's on on defense. If that can be strategically done, yes, you need to look at matchups. Who is he going to bring down? How important is he on defense? Um, but uh, I mean, I, that, uh, that in its – You can do it, at least try it one time, a couple of times, see what it is. Uh, you know, really spread out things and really isolate him at, you know, some extreme measures. And there's, and I've seen it done by um, many coaches over the years. Um, one of the coaches that did it, did it a ton with the sending guys down when he had a good whole set is somebody like Don Stahl, who plays it, who would play it. You know, it's not a, not a USA water polo technique at all. It's not, and it has to be, you know, you have to consider it. You have to consider all the matchups and what that means. There's implications. But, uh, you know, and, and one of the guys that does it a lot now, um, who, and, 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 you know, and, and they have um, had some success with it, but they, you know, they really drive the two-meter game is Colonel Del Mar. Coach O'Day does it, and, you know, obviously uh, sitting a couple of chairs away from him is usually Ryan Bailey, you know, Olympic center. And uh, Colonel Del Mar sends their centers down, and they really pound the ball into two meters. And I would have loved to have seen that from Harvard as well. Yeah, I mean, if you do that – you know, if you do that, I think you're going to get Halleck in in a one-on-one situation no matter what. And, and if you don't, if, if Modern Day sends another guy back, two guys back, because obviously whoever Halleck is guarding is going to go back with him. But if Modern Day sends back another player just because they don't want him to be one-on-one, then you're disrupting Modern Day's front court offense completely. And so I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that that could have been a strategy – that, you know, it's not going to work every time, but it's definitely going to get you thinking. And Halleck wasn't, you know, I mean, he's a good defender, but he's not asked on that team to do a lot of the, you know, movement on defense. He's basically just on one guy, and he's shot blocking in front of that guy, and that that's pretty much it. You know, he's not really asked to do anything else be that mobile in the front court defense so um i agree with you i think that would have been a really smart way to disrupt the modern day offense the front court offense because harvard did a great job both teams did a really good job of shutting down each other's counterattacks. i mean uh, modern day this year seemed to be more geared towards counterattack. they wanted yeah. to get a lot of easy goals um they they have a good two meter guy but not not like they had in the past so i think they wanted to get some easy goals early um and you know i just i think flax would have wanted to get that game back and and tried some some other things you know i i definitely agree but again modern day i don't think any i don't think very many people gave modern day a chance to win this game um but in the end i mean you know they stuck with the same game plan. They didn't really have a new game plan, and Flax was not able to figure it out for three games. Yeah, I mean, I would have. You know, I, I think you really you have a star player like um, Alec. I mean, I, you you want to challenge him. You want to 
he's got to have his imprint on the game, and you have to play at that desperation. And I think on you know you flip the coin on the other side, you know um, modern day, they you know they did whatever it took to uh, stop Halleck, and they played real unconventional. And you know it, to me it's pretty. Uh, I mean they're putting three guys on him, and it looks almost um, you know. When you when I've you know and I've watched a lot of water polo and you, you watch go watch the national team and you watch you watch international water polo and Olympic and national teams you never see that and you, you never see that kind of um, you know coverage like that but uh, they'll go they went to whatever method they needed to to stop Halleck and I think on the and then that's you know Harvard had to do the same thing on offense they need to do whatever it takes to get their best guy isolated you know and. I, I would even like to see modern day. I, I would have loved to see, um, you know, and I saw it at times this year, uh, but I would have loved to see, you know, modern day ISO uh, Dunstan more. I would have been fine with him. Um, and again, he has very key. He has, you know, he he has important uh, matchups on defense, probably more than Halleck. But seeing him go down early, or seeing him set and ISO him a little bit more. But uh, to modern day's credit, uh, they probably, you know, Sean Duncan actually. Uh, and, and many of the games this year against Harvard, he, uh, the, he's going to Princeton. He had a great game against Harvard. Yeah, he, he well, did have a great well, game. He, he couldn't get going too much against Loyola, especially in the semifinals. He was very productive at two meters. And um, but I thought, you know, I just thought modern day, he just seemed so hungry this year. Uh, their defense was so uh, strong. Nolan Strout played well in goal for them as well. And uh, they weren't going to be denied in, in, in I think uh, it was on Harvard to uh, to counter that drop and the, and the shot blocking, and um, but uh, I you think know, modern day got it done. I think Loyola had a little bit more focus on modern day's two meter man Sean Duncan. I don't think Harvard was focused in on that. I think they wanted to try to press in the beginning of the game, and I mean Sean Duncan scored three goals. And um, he scored a couple really early. And so, you know, I think that really put him in. That sets you up for the rest of the game. You know, if you if you get something out of two meters early, that really sets you up. And, um, you know, I did notice that Dunstan posted up a lot in the final game. I didn't see him post up a lot throughout the season. But I did notice that he was posting up quite a bit, um, actually swimming from position five over to the two post. A couple of times, um, and I don't know if that was a design play or, or, or what. It looked like it, obviously, but um, I did notice that he was in a little bit more often than I'd seen him in the past. But uh, you know, in the end, it was it was the modern day defense. They got stops when they were spo- when they needed to get stops, and um, you know, I, I thought the referees did a good job uh, of, of controlling the game early. They, they really made a, made it a point to say, look, I know you guys are rivals. I know you guys don't like each other, but we're not going to let this thing get out of control and be too physical. And, um, I thought both Chris Lancelotti and Mark Despers did a a, a very good job of, of controlling it early. There were a lot of exclusions in the first quarter. Yeah. And it was Jackson Peebles, a kid, a sophomore that we've been, you know, everyone's high on. We talked about him on our podcast throughout the year and he's a very talented player. And uh, he's going to be, you know, he's got a lot of great water pull ahead of him. And I think they probably make, they, they probably make, the referees probably, they sent a pretty strong message by uh, having him, him uh, out for the game. He made some contact with the face of, uh, you know, uh, Ben Halleck. And, you know, you know, it's very hard to tell exactly what's happening in there. But, you know, like you said, you 
know, there's no denying that his, you know, he, he made some contact with the face. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they sent a message that probably helped the game, uh, control the game, and that's something that he'll learn from. Um, but, it, you know, it's, uh, it's stuff you don't you want to see everybody playing out there. But, you know, um, you, know you, you gotta, you, you know, we want to see, you know, good, clean, uh, you know, and, and tough water polo, but you don't want to see um, anything uh, going on. And But, uh, hey, Coach, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, as we close out our, our uh, final Boys Water Polo podcast of, of the season, we're here with Orange Lutheran Coach Steve Carrera. Uh, breaking down, we just broke down Division One and Division Two finals, which really topped the uh, the finals uh, Saturday. Looking ahead, 2016, I, I predict we're going to have some new playoff format, but we're still going to have uh, some teams to watch this year, um, next year. Are there are there any teams, you know, in Division One, Division Two, you think that are going to still remain strong, that are or maybe under the radar right now that could take that next step? Um, and, I, and then I'll I'll share some of my uh, some of my picks. Uh, you know, throughout Orange County, and, and we'll can talk a little bit about Division One. Well, I mean, I know a lot of focus has been on, um, you know, I'll talk Division One in general, but um, I know that there's been a lot of focus on Ben Halleck, but I think a lot of people don't realize that the core of that team are juniors, and they're bringing, you know, obviously everybody's coming back. So I think Harvard-Westlake is going to be very, very dangerous next year. Um, I think they're going to be very balanced. And they're they're definitely going to be a team up at the top. Um, you know, modern day they lose a ton of seniors, but right. you know the, the truth is, you know, they get transfers every single year, and there's going to be people who are going to be attracted to that, uh, the winning and and to the CIF championship, and there are going to be people who are going to gravitate over to uh, modern day, and I think. On paper, if you were to look at their roster right now, you're thinking, oh, they might have a uh, sort of a uh, not a down year, but you know they're not going to be as strong as they are this year. But you know, you just can't ever count them out. I mean, they got a couple good two meter guys uh, that are on the bench. Uh, obviously, Jack Siebold, you know, is is going to be a, a threat. Um, and so I, you know, I, I would expect that they're going to be up there. Um, I think Huntington Beach. Is going to be a, a good team with uh, Quentin Osborne and and uh, Wojciechowski. Uh, you know these these guys have sort of been uh, prepped for this year and they to make this run coming up in 2016. And um, I think Newport Harbor is going to be good. You know they got um, they got their core of their team coming back and you know you can't ever underestimate how difficult it is to have one of your starters sit out for 30 days and, and really sit out the majority of the tournaments because the major two of the major tournaments are in September, which is unfortunate. Um, so I think Newport is going to be, you know, looking pretty sharp next year. And then uh, Orange Lutheran, you know, I think uh, Orange Lutheran, my team is, is going to be really good. I think we're going to be uh, one of the contenders next year. And, um, you know, we, we bring a really – good core back and um we have a balance of juniors and and juniors and seniors next year you know they're juniors and sophomores now but um i, I definitely think that we're going to be able to make a run next year and uh uh you know it'll be an interesting off season to say the least with all of the club play going on i think a lot of teams are starting to lean more towards playing together year round um especially in those top four and um you know uh, I think those are really the the top five teams. I think Loyola's one to watch. They've always been the one to watch, but they do lose a pretty 
strong core of seniors, um, but they have Vavich coming back. So, um, yeah, I, I think those are the uh, six, seven teams that are going to be up at the top. Yeah, I think you guys will, you know, I think Orange Luke will be, you know, very, uh, very intriguing. I mean, you have your whole entire uh, lineup back, you know, all all starters, including the, in the, the goal with Jake Simmons, have a full season of Hannes uh, Dabe with Ash Moulton. It should be a dynamic uh, duo as a juniors. You know, both of those guys I know are on the national team um, radar. They should get a lot of experience. Um, and I think you guys will be outstanding. I think Huntington is, yeah, I think you're right. They're going to gear for a big year. Um, they're going to have Ryan Hurst, who was a, a very big uh, and powerful two-meter defender who sat out uh, pretty much all year this year. He was a transfer from Newport to uh, Huntington Beach, sat out. Um, he's going to have to, and I talked to Huntington Beach, he's going to have to sit out the first part of the um, next season as well. So he's going to be a sit-out guy. Until, you know, so he's going to miss you know, the first month of the season as well. See, now, um, now, you know, really quickly, and not to cause any controversy, the fact that Ryan Hurst transferred in the middle of the year and this is maybe something you know or maybe can get clarification on, does that make him ineligible until the time that this time or that time next year? So he, he you know, he transferred in, like, October. So, I mean, does he just have to set out the normal 30 days or does he have to sit out the 30 days plus the time that, you know, because he played games with Newport, um... Is there going to be a difference? Do they do they give it more than thirty days uh, because of that? You know, I mean that that seems to be sort of a question for me. That's up in the air. Does he just sit out the normal thirty days? I, I don't I don't I don't know if that would be correct if he did only have to sit out thirty days because if you get teams or players leaving in the middle of a season, um, seems to me that that you would have to you're not eligible until the date of the time that you move schools. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, how, you know, I talked to Coach Sasha about him briefly, uh, the Huntington Beach coach. He said he was going to have to do the 30-day sit-out um, next year. So my, my my thought is that I and I'll have to you know you know try to get more information. But my first thought is that right now the rules are mostly uh, you know you have the 30-day uh, rule, the sit-out period is, is the most restrictions that kids get now, and I don't think the rules of the whole sit-out for a whole year. Uh, really apply anymore, but I could be wrong. But he's a guy uh, to watch um, because he, you know he'll you know really help them defend so well. He's uh, pretty pretty big, strong guy. And he's out of the Vanguard Club, so that should help their defense. And I agree with you about Newport. Um, you know, Newport really counted on a lot of their young players this year. Um, so I think you know, and having uh, Conbord, Con Connor Turnbow Linenstaff for a whole year will be big. They have some uh, two-meter guys that they are high on, guys like Jackson West, uh, Westerman. He's going to be an interesting guy to see him develop. Uh, they got a, a lefty, Cole uh, Cosman, um, who was a, uh, was a junior this year, I believe. So he's going to be a guy uh, to watch. Uh, you, know, they have, uh, you know, they have some young talent in that Newport program. You know, that kind of, you know, then another team, you know, we also, you know, you can never count out Corona Del Mar. You know, they did win the... Um, Great Lundy, the top frost soft tournament of the season. Um, they will also, uh, you know, could be in the, you know, they have a lot of young talent. They'll have their goalie back, um, Matt Moran. 
but uh, they, they, you know, they have been heavily senior um, group there, so that could be tough. But um, they will have their two meter back uh, kid back too. One of their two meter guys, uh, Tamir Avital. So I think uh, Corona Del Mar, you know, can't look past them. But I think what we're talking about with Division One, you know, and if you look at it, how it you know turns out in the playoffs, all these teams I think we talked about, even if the playoff structures changes, they're all going to be Division One teams, and that really brings you back to the league race, and those playoff seedings. And I think, you know, you talk about modern day, Orange Lutheran, you know, modern day is the Trinity League king. They're, the, they're you know, somebody's going to have to knock them off to really um, throw off those playoff seedings uh, a little bit. Where, um, you know, I think that's, you know, those league races are very important is what I'm trying to say. So, you know, that you'll have to watch that modern day Orange Lutheran game to be big, will be big for playoff seedings. And the same with Newport and Huntington Beach. They're in the same league, Sunset League. That will be really big, and you can see the the impact that some of these league races uh, have. Where you have like, and then you have Harvard and Loyola still in the same league, where you know Loyola they you know they get the runner up finish to um, runner up finish to Harvard, so they end up on the opposite side of the bracket. And who are they playing in the semis? Modern Day, the eventual champions. They play Modern Day Nails, you know, seven six game in the semifinals, but. You know they're the runner-up. They got the they got a tough uh, tough draw. You know Orange Lutheran. You know you guys were the runner-up quarterfinals. Boom, league champion Huntington Beach. Sudden death over or uh, overtime game. Tough draw for the Lancers. Pretty tough for Huntington too. Um, but if you, if you can try to uh, you can avoid some of those quarterfinal pitfalls. You know by you know winning your league where you have like Harvard. They played Agura in their league. You know, as the number two overall seed, Modern Day played Wilson. They had a very easy quarterfinal. Um, uh, owned Wilson in that one, twenty-one to seven. So, um, well, really got to get uh, get that. Those league titles are important to get that top seed and help yourself in the brackets. Yeah, the semis are usually going to be crazy tough, but uh, you know, you you know, you start to get into those quarterfinals or a tough first round draw. Like, you know, by, you know look what happened to Newport this year. They played at Long Beach Wilson on the road in the first round. That's scary. Yeah. They knew that was going to be a tough game, and it was an incredible, uh, incredible game. Uh, sudden death overtime game there, but you gotta, you gotta, you gotta uh, really fight for those uh, high seeds. I think. But if they go, they do go into the uh, that basketball model. If they go into that basketball model, you know, you now have to start seeing some of these number three teams in our in league. Moving out of Division One or the open division, maybe moved into Division Two. You know, I mean, you look at like the Pacific Coast League. I mean, no, not a knock on Pacific Coast, but it's not a very strong league. You know, the the top two, you know, the number two seed uh, or the number two team out of that league, Beckman. You know, we Orange Lutheran played them in the first round, and I mean, it, it was a it was a blowout. You know, and so I think you move teams out of Division One. And you start moving teams in like a foothill, like a Dana Hills, yeah. and all of a sudden these quarterfinal games, even these first round games, become, I mean, really tough. Good point, coach. Really yeah, tough. You might be right. Maybe you know that Division One will be. It, it could be even tougher next yeah. year. Yeah. No, then, Division. If they go into the right. if they go into the basketball model, Division One is going to be a monster. There will be no easy games at all. You know, every single first round game was, except for the Long Beach-Wilson-Newport game, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, was 
not close. I mean, it, it was not a close game. And, um, you know, that just shows some of the, the, the difference between, you know, the, the top league winners, top one, top two, and some of our leagues like the Trinity League, like the Sunset League. Those, those leagues are just super difficult. Um, but then you have, you know, maybe a third-place team or even a fourth-place team like in Edison – moving into a division two or three and then going all the way to the semis or to the finals, you know? So I think it's going to be really interesting to see what CIF does with this. And um, I'm sure they're getting a lot of push from, you know, people saying, well, the private schools, you know, three out of four teams were in the, you know, in the semis and so on and so forth. So who knows what they're going to do? Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, you can look at, for sure, I would say Foothills probably, if this new model passes, Foothill and Dana, you know, you might be, able, you know, you might say, yeah, they're going to be going on, and I think, you know, to Division One, and I think Foothill still will be quite strong. Though they had a special, you know, big three seniors with Bobby Lee and Chas Horner and Mike Miller, but they're still going to have their goalie. They're going to still have, you know, rising standouts like Nolan Ortega, um, Joseph Molina, you know, Zane Scott. Those are three dynamite players. Um, JJ Horner is another kid who's up. Uh, a younger brother is going to be there, and there's, you know, we can go on. I mean, there's, you know, and I still think Dana's going to be good because, um, you know, they played a lot of young guys, and they're going to have the McLaughlin's, and Adam Cole's going to be back, and Kai Hansen, the lefty's going to be back, and uh, Doherty, James Doherty started to emerge, and they, you know, they're playing um, you know, a lot of young guys. You know, Bryce Dunn, for example, is going to be another guy. So, you know, I think uh, – but I don't think – I think Dana it's, – it's hard to imagine that Dana and Foot will be better next year than they were this year. Yeah. Where they, you know, I agree. Uh, you know, but I still think they're bound for Division One, And, um, you know, but they, hey, they, they put on the show this year. So, um, but it's going to, like you said, it's going to be an interesting offseason. Uh, Modern Day is still the king of Orange County. Um, but uh, their, their roster is going to look a lot different. But like you said, I mean, they have guys like, you know, waiting in the wings – you know, uh, the, the center, Wyatt Benson, who was the Huntington Beach uh, transfer, you know, there's a, there's a freshman center that they're uh, very high on. Uh, Warren uh, Luth, who was a uh, uh, loft, you know, six foot four guy. You know, you, you watch those intros after the game, uh, after the you know, trophy, uh, the plaque ceremony after the Division One final. The last guy to get his, uh, well, probably the last guy to get his uh, patch was Warren Loft. I mean, he's a monstrous kid. Um, you know, they, you know, they have, and then, you know, their JV teams better than a lot of varsity, you know, probably most varsity teams in Orange County. I saw them this year and they have a lot of young guys that are going to push the counter and play tough defense. And, you know, they're going to have the center play and they're going to be, you know, and they're going to be well coached and they'll be highly motivated and, and, and everything like they are every year. So it's uh, shaping up to be, you know, I thought this was a great season, uh, absolute phenomenal playoffs. And, uh, but I think the future looks outstanding for boys water polo 2016 in, in Division One Southern Section, Orange County. There's a lot of Orange County teams that are, that are loaded up for next year to have big seasons. Teams like Beckman's going to have everybody back. Lisa Miguel's going to have a ton of people back. They're going to go to the South Coast League. Brea, Linda is in the North Hills League if, if they stick in that league, but they have everybody back. Um, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of teams that are and doing what you said, Coach, playing together in the off season. A lot of those teams I just mentioned do just what you said. Yeah, I mean that's the key, you know, and I mean that that's the key. Unfortunately, you know, in public school you can't really require it, 
you could only sort of, you know, hope that everyone does it. Um, but you know, I, if there was any sort of, you know, if there's any sort of thing that I think would grow water polo is to really have these high schools play together year round. And I mean, that's the key, I believe, to uh, to really being accountable for your players' development. When you throw them at a, in a big club, they're, you know, the high school coach is not accountable for that player anymore. Really, you're giving it to somebody else. So, you know, I know not everybody can do it because, of, you know, jobs and all these other things. But, you know, I, I think it's nice to see um, teams that are playing together year-round. And, uh, you know, you look at a team like Modern Day, or even Orange Lutheran. I mean, you know, Modern Day got third at JOs, uh, 18 and under. Um, you know, Olu got first and 16 and under. I mean, that that is um, that that's a pretty good accomplishment. You know, considering that the team that won 18s is, you know, uh, was an all-star team. You know, I mean, and they they were pr- proud to say that. So I think it's it's a good thing when teams are playing together year-round for sure. Well, it's going to be. Uh... Like you said, interesting and uh, fun off season. So, Coach, we appreciate uh, very much you joining us on the podcast for the boys season. We're looking forward to talking some girls water polo uh, with you. It's going to be uh, uh, starting uh, pretty quickly here in uh, early December. So, we want to wish uh, all the uh, the water polo fans that have joined us on our podcast and listened to us all year. Want to thank you very much. Happy holidays! As um, it goes on this week, the same with you, Coach. And uh, thank you. And uh, appreciate you joining us. And uh, Thank you again to all the water polo fans.